Welcome to Deep in Scripture Podcast. I'm Marcus Grodi, your host, and this podcast is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. Before we get started, just a reminder that for more information about this program and to access past episodes, be sure to visit deepinscripture.com. And also, if you'd like to submit questions or feedback, you can do so via the website by sending an email to questions at deepinscripture.com or by finding us on Facebook or Twitter. So thank you for any comments. We'd love to hear from you. Today, once again, we're focusing on hard verses, and I am very pleased to have as a guest today, David Anders. Welcome, David. Marcus, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's great. It was it was good way back when, when you joined me on the Journey Home program, and it's also, uh, I'm just so great, great and gratified to hear how you're doing on your daily program called to Communion. That's 2, two o'clock every day on EWTN Radio. <laughs> Two o'clock Eastern, EWTN, Global Catholic Radio. Exactly. So you can listen to your local affiliate or pick, up, pick it up online or shortwave or any way. Well, that's, I remember when uh, I had you on Journey Home and uh, when I picked up my jaw off the ground, I said, this guy's got to do a little more. And so it's good that you've gotten very much involved. In well, that, I appreciate it. And that was a that was a wonderful opportunity for me to get involved in Catholic media before that. You know, I had uh, I'd been about seven years with uh, no ministry or apostolate at all, except a little bit of teaching in my parish. <laughs> um, so it was a wonderful opportunity. Well, it's good to have you on today. This this program, uh, we're taking a little different slant. We've done deep in scripture for a number of years, but we're taking a little different slant, especially since now we're doing it uh, just as a podcast, uh, is I'm inviting guests to talk about verses that were hard. And for those of you joining the program for the first time, I remember back when I was a Protestant minister, I could divide all of Scripture into three different kinds, those that were sunny, those that were cloudy, and those that were stormy. Uh, the, the sunny ones needed no explanation. I just knew there they were. You know, John 3.16, they didn't need any explanation, at least I assumed. The cloudy ones... Uh, they needed some further explanation to fit within my window of understanding my faith. And then those story ones, sometimes I couldn't come up with a good explanation to make them fit. So they would stay up on the nice shelf or up there some way. There was a few verses like John 6, which I never preached on all the time I was a Protestant minister. But anyway, David, that's the idea of choosing some verses that, as you look back, given your tradition where you came from, were hard. So what what verses would you like to look at today? And what was your background? Why were they tough for you? Well, sure. Thank you so much. Well, I, I'd like to talk about John chapter 14, verse 23, especially. And uh, if I could just read the text, Jesus Please. replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching and my father will love them and we will come to him and make our home or make our dwelling with him. Now, uh, I was raised ostensibly a Calvinist Presbyterian. Um, but I like to say if you, in our, in our church, if you cut us, we bled evangelical right? <laughs> so that, you know, while our polity was Presbyterian, our spirituality was very, you know, would have been very sympathetic to a Billy Graham style, of evangelism, you know, invitation, pray to receive Christ into your heart, you know, recite the sinner's prayer, you can have assurance of your salvation, and then all the rest is just window dressing after that. So, you know, 
we 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 practice infant baptism and this kind of thing, but but we had you know we would have had very comfortable with intercommunion with Baptists, and in fact there was kind of a coming and a going between our our congregation and all manner of evangelical churches. So we weren't particular about that. It was what really mattered was faith in Christ, pray the sinner's prayer, receive Jesus into your heart. Well, let me ask you a question about that because I was you and I would have would have enjoyed sharing coffee together because you and I would have been about on the same page. However, when I look back, given our Calvinist convictions that not only was everything that we believed and our our openness to Christ, the new life that we experienced all by grace, that we believed that there was a predestined part of that that really came to us, that we could almost claim nothing for, uh, at least from our strict, uh, a strict Calvinist, it was all God and not me. And yet, when you respond to the Billy Graham, who, uh, a great hero to me, the Billy Graham, just as you've said, all of that evangelical, the emphasis is all upon us responding, moving, listening, hearing, obeying, and surrendering to Christ. Did you have a problem fitting those together, given your Calvinist background? Well, you know, you lay your hand on one of the great difficulties in Calvinist spirituality. And the, the reason the Billy Graham style appeal emerged in Christian history, and of course, you don't really find this until the likes of D.L. Moody. I think Moody right. is the fellow who popularized the idea of the sinner's prayer. Prior to Moody, uh, within Calvinist or Presbyterian circles, the idea of conversion was a lot more complex. When you go back into Puritanism, for instance, the Puritans published all these manuals on how to investigate the conscience to discern whether or not you were really born again and <clears throat> whether you really knew God. And if you've ever read Jonathan Edwards' book, yeah. Religious Affections, it's, it's, it's kind of the best of that genre. But you don't find in the Puritans any sort of decisive moment where you recite a prayer and know for sure that you're saved. It's much more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. Perry Miller, you know, the great historian, once said that the the Puritans may have may have uh, 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 moved men off of the you know the treadmill. No, how did he put it? He saved them from the treadmill of penances and indulgences, but he threw them onto the iron couch of introspection. <laughs> yes. you know? and that was very characteristic of the the Puritan mindset. And it was in the 18th century <clears throat> that uh, that revivalists like George Whitfield tried to cut through all of that and and simplify the appeal. And of course, I got carried on by Finney who introduced his, uh, his new measures, and then finally it got simplified down by the likes of, uh, of D.L. Moody to the simple sinner's prayer, and that gets picked up by Billy Graham and, and uh, Bill Bright and evangelicals like that. Um, but there is a kind of incoherence there that you, put, you, put, you point your finger on. And I find that uh, as an evangelical, you, you were schooled in this idea that, you know, God has chosen you and granted you faith and you're saved by faith alone and not by works. Um, but there is within the tradition a recognition that some people have a false faith or a spurious faith. And so even though you've recited the sinner's prayer and you're telling yourself over and over again, I know I'm saved, I know I'm saved, I know I'm saved, in your darker moments, you would ask yourself, but how do I know my faith is real? Yeah. And then you, at that point, you're encouraged sometimes, well, you know, does your life bear evidence? Does it show fruit of conversion? 
And then, of course, you begin to examine the qualities of your moral life. But then you're also told that all your righteous deeds are like filthy rags. And so you're sort of left hanging between, uh, well, you might say some days presumption and other days despair. Yeah. And uh, and and so there is a kind of incoherence and there's no there's ultimately no resolution of that conflict except to sort of pick one end of that polarity and just put your foot down and say, I know I'm saved. I know I'm saved. You know, this or would collapse into despair. This would lead to an amazing study, I think, David, because that <clears throat> that uh, uh, that conflict in understanding this theology back in the 18th century, the Puritan the Calvinist, it's all God, it's nothing me. Then the new, you know, the first awakening, which said it needs to show in some kind of faith. The Puritans wondering, well, you should be able to see whether you whether you're one of the elect somehow. Well, that led to the second great awakening in the 19th century. We have all these different movements that led to Mormonism and Jehovah Witness and the spiritualists and the transcendentalists. I think that all came out of this conundrum of how, how do I get the balance of is, is it what's where's the spirituality here? Is it just all God or do I have to do something? In fact, one other figure that came out of the 18th century who was the, the strongest opponent to Jonathan Edwards was a man by the name of Charles Chauncey, who was the pastor of First Church Boston. And he so reacted to um, Jonathan Edwards idea that he, he was staunchly said, no, it's the you know, it's it, it's the strong Puritan understanding of Calvinist, but he was so upset by this idea of such a sovereign, just God that he wanted to emphasize the mercy of God. So he came up with his own theology that eventually everyone will be saved. It's just that uh, some will die and then they will have to purge their sins for a time, but we will all be in heaven. He was the founder of what became uni universalism and led to the universal. Sure. It all came out of the same pot. Uh, well, it, it did. And um, there's a there's a historian, I think her name is McKnight or Knight, Janice Knight, McKnight. But I remember the book title. It's Orthodoxies in Massachusetts. And the, the thesis, the subject matter, is that as soon as the Puritans had the opportunity to undertake their so-called holy experiment, that dissent and conflict and factions and sectarianism emerged immediately because they were trying to dogmatize on the interior life in ways that were you know, beyond anybody's ability to, to, uh, to, you know, to take a definitive stand. And so you had all these different groups and denominations all anathematizing each one for heresy. And the yeah. thing fell apart in the first generation. And you know, getting back to then to this passage, I mean, so you have all this conundrum of how to understand our backgrounds, David, from a Calvinist perspective. What did you do with John fourteen twenty three? Maybe read it again for the audience. And how, do, how did you deal with it? Oh yeah, thank you. Okay, so the. Uh, the difficulty emerges at two points, right? So first of all, Christ says, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. All right, so right there, the condition that Christ sets up for this divine indwelling is distinctly ethical and moral, love and obedience. Yes. And that doesn't fit into my paradigm of by faith alone. So that's a difficulty, all right? And then the second one, uh, which didn't strike me as a difficulty at first, is what on earth does Christ mean by this by this indwelling that I and my Father will come and make our home with Him? What does that mean? Well, 
you know, my experience was as an evangelical, verses like this tend to get read through a lens. Uh, and I think that, you know, another verse that was sort of beyond point that we found easier to handle would be Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Yes. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with that person and they with me. And, you know, I, I grew up in Sunday school as a little child and, and is presented almost in a sort of crudely material way. We, the, I would have Sunday school teachers that would draw diagrams on the board of a little circle or a little heart with a literal door on it yep. and say, you know, all you have to do is say yes to Jesus and he comes in and out. All right. And so as an image or a picture, that was perfectly intelligible. Uh, but as you begin to get older as a concept, it, it poses all kinds of questions. Well, what, what is the nature of this dwelling in my heart? You know, and particularly when you're schooled in the idea that that our relationship with Christ is as is merely by faith and it's it's not by charity and it's certainly not by any sort of you know moral works or good deeds. Well, you know, what 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 sense is there to be made of that? And I found that there were uh maybe maybe uh, two general tendencies in evangelical circles. The more extreme, which you would find in uh, Pentecostal and charismatic groups, would be the view that Christ dwelling in your heart is manifested in, in locutions, that, that Jesus actually speaks to you verbally, right? And, uh, and I, I know folks who, who operate like this on a daily basis, and they, they don't make decisions until they hear a voice, you know? And and you don't have to be around that kind of thing for very long to realize that most of the time it's extremely dangerous. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and I, I mean, I'm also, you know, you, you begin to wonder if there's not some psychosis that can take yeah. place from time yeah. to time. And, uh, and I've seen some people do some pretty crazy things. Right. And, uh, and I had a few experiences in my life where I thought, well, this must be what that means. And so I'm going to frame my decision-making around waiting to hear voices and, and I can remember sort of putting the challenge to God. Okay, you've promised you're going to speak to me, so I'm not going to take a move until you do. You know, and then and then of course some thought occurs to you, and it sets up a whole series of questions about is this really God talking to me or not? And you kind of go off quickly into neuroticism after that. Um, and the other tendency would just be, well, you know, this must just mean uh, what many evangelicals talk about is a personal relationship with Jesus. That that. You know, I talk to him and maybe he doesn't talk to me directly through locutions or words in my mind, but he speaks to me from the Bible and we ha we enter into this sort of dialogue. And uh, but, of course, devoid of that ethical content, devoid of the life of love and charity, um, that can that can devolve quickly into a kind of banal, superficial relationship. I mean, I. I I, I think about someone I know whose relationship with Christ in that sense consists in asking for the best parking spot in the grocery store, yeah, you know, yeah. and that it kind of devolves into superficiality. So on, on both of these questions, how in fact does one acquire this interior dwelling? All right. Is it by faith alone or as Christ tells me, is it by love and obedience? And then what is the nature of that indwelling? And I think the full import of the difficulty uh, it didn't occur to me initially, but it was underlying a lot of conflicts I was having in my spiritual life. And let me just add to that, David, because that I want to make sure the audience hears how significant this is. Because if you look across the landscape at Christendom today, there are so many opinions on this very issue, the intimacy of Jesus. You know, and I grew up a Lutheran. I remember the earliest 
song I learned as a young Lutheran boy was, come into my heart, come into my hum, come into my heart, Lord Jesus, come in today, come in to stay, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Now, that wasn't exactly good Lutheran theology, but some Sunday school teacher picked that little tune up from somewhere and used it. And she wasn't aware that it wasn't exactly Lutheran theology or Calvinist theology. I remember later uh, as a charismatic congregationalist before I went to seminary, you know, remember that song, he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. The theology of that intimacy with Christ, which becomes portrayed through a writer's limited theology into words that fit into a poem and make a nice song, but is it good theology? What is the tradition it represents? And so you have a hodgepodge of people understanding what a verse like this means. And David, another thing is that Calvinists are not known for having very developed spiritualities at all, are they? Well, not today. That wasn't always the case. You know, I mean, Puritans were were uh, very vigorous in trying to develop spiritualities, but the the stereotype in popular film and literature about Puritan spirituality is grounded in fact. You know, when I I, I spent a whole semester in graduate school in a seminar studying Puritan theology, and came away with the conclusion that I thank God every day I wasn't born a Puritan. <laughs> yeah, my professor. Um, uh, uh, at seminary, Richard Lovelace, that was his main emphasis. And some of you listening of that background may remember his emphasis on spirituality. This verse itself, David, I mean, listen, when you think about the idea of I go to the Bible, I open the Bible, that Jesus dwelling within my heart, the spirit will help me understand what it says. And then he'll teach me how to live. And you go to a verse like this, if a man loves me, well, now we're, we've opened the can of worms. What does it mean to love Christ? He will keep my word. The word keep, I think, is also the word remain or continue, I'm guessing. You remember Romans or John 8, you know, if you're my disciple, you will continue in my word and you will know my truth and truth will set you free. Kind of the same parallel. What's it mean to keep his word? And how do you define whether you're doing it? Do you have a, a, a little wrist, wrist, wristband that says, what would Jesus do? And that's, that's how you define that. Um, loving the Father. Uh, coming to him, him coming to us, making our home. There's so many deep issues in this simple verse with so many theologies of different interpretation. That's why it can be very, very difficult because it's important. It's, it's like that John 6 verse that says, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life within you. These are important verses. Now, when you were back in your evangelical days, were you aware that there were other people with other understandings of this concept of the indwelling of Christ? Oh, yeah. There were all the heretics that were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and I mean that quite seriously. I mean, we were very, very confident in the truth of our tradition. And, uh, and so, you know, when I went to seminary and graduate school, I had no expectation that the foundations of my theology would crumble and I would one day become a Catholic. On the contrary, I, I, I literally viewed my vocation in life, at least in part, as a kind of full frontal assault on Catholic theology and spirituality and an attempt to proselytize Catholics and win them over to 
you know, uh, this great Puritan tradition that I had been reared in. Um, but honestly, I mean, that was, that was more or less how I was indoctrinated. My, my actual lived experience of the faith was a more mixed affair, but I, I was certain that in order to find peace with God, I had to approach it from this conception that we were absolutely right. And there was nothing outside the tradition that I needed to bother with except refute. Uh, and so to, to find that there were deeper, more profound, more penetrating, more biblical, more sensible understanding of this reality was for me a rude awakening. Uh, I remember the, the first time that I saw this verse, saw it meaning became aware that there's something here deeper than I understand was when I was in seminary and we had two speakers, both world-renowned authors. One was Richard Foster, the other one was Henry Nouwen. And Richard Foster, who had just published a book called Celebrations of Discipline, was talking about fasting and prayer and, and, and looking back to the Middle Ages as if we discovered something brand new. And it was new to me because that wasn't a tradition of my Calvinist background, fasting. I remember and, that part. I remember that. Book. Yeah, it was, it was a big deal in the late 70s, early 80s. But then the second speaker was a man by the name of Richard Henry Nowen. And at the time, he was a professor down the road at Harvard. And he was speaking on this verse, make Christ, allow your heart to be the home of Jesus Christ. And I remember listening to him and saying, I don't have a mental file folder for what he's talking about. I, I couldn't understand the depths. So my introduction to this verse was, what does it mean? So David, how have you come to see the significance of what's being addressed here by our Lord in this verse? Sure. Well, you know, to, to follow up a little bit on your second question was, when did I realize there were other interpretations? It was when I was in graduate school. And just as a part of my education, I, you know, in the history of the tradition, I had to read the Catholic mystics. And now, you know, a lot of times people hear the word mystic and they think that that's kind of a spooky thing and it involves, you know, all kinds of esoteric experiences. That's not at all what Catholics mean by the term mystic, at least not traditionally. Right. A mystic is someone that has a profound interior relationship with God. That's all that means. All right. And the spooky, weird stuff um, uh, is very often a cause of, you know, to be suspicious of someone, not, not to trust their judgment. Now, occasionally saints have, you know, phenomenal experiences, but that's not the essence of mysticism. So I began to read the Teresa of Avila's and the Johns of the Cross and, and, you know, and even the imitation of Christ, this kind of literature. And, uh, and I realized that there were depths there that exceeded anything that I had been raised in people who, whose whole lives were committed to sort of peeling back the layers of, of distraction and sin and, you know, attachment to the world and arriving at a place in their interior life where they were so closely bound to our Lord that literally nothing else mattered to them. I mean, bombs going off, warfare, you know, sickness and death, whatever it was, was to them, as, you know, Teresa of Avila said, uh, in light of eternity, all these things seem like one night in a bad hotel, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and you know her famous poem about let nothing disturb you. You know, God alone suffices. And those are, <laughs> you know, often that kind of language I'd heard from before from other people. But honestly, many times it was platitude. But from Teresa of Avila, you knew she meant it. And so it challenged me. It challenged me. But it, the full import of it didn't really dawn upon me until until I became Catholic and I began to read more deeply in the tradition and, and understand the weight that the Catholic Church places on the contemplative life. 
you know, the story of Mary and Martha being the sort of paradigm case that ultimately our discipleship to Christ, while it should bear fruit in, in active works of charity, is all about knowing Christ profoundly in our interior life. All right. And and what began to open the door for me on this was that kind of literature, uh, Joseph Pieper, Happiness and Contemplation, the writings of St. Thomas Aquinas in particular, when I investigated this very question. He, Thomas talks about what does it mean uh, for, for friends to indwell one another. And it's in friendship, honestly, is the paradigm, is the model that opens up the meaning of the verse. If you go to John chapter 15, for instance, Christ Christ in, uh, in John 15, verses 14 and 15, elaborates on this teaching. And he says, you are my friends if you do what I command. And I no longer call you slaves because a slave does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have told you everything I heard from my father. So it's friendship with God, really, is what this is all about. And, you know, in my experience of friendship, one of the beautiful things I've come to realize is that you you begin to incorporate your friend's personality and interests and loves and passions and insight into your own life. And it opens up your experience of the world and enriches it in ways that you could never have as a solitary person. One of my one of my very good friends is a Lebanese Maronite Catholic and an engineering professor. And uh, and through my relationship with him, I've come to understand something of what it's like to be from Lebanon or to be a Maronite or to be an engineering professor. I have another friend who lives in Alaska. I've never been to Alaska, but through him, I have some knowledge of what it means to uh, to. Um, to live in Alaska. And St. Thomas says, the lover, the one who has a friend, is not satisfied with a superficial apprehension of the beloved, but strives to gain an intimate knowledge of everything pertaining to the beloved, so as to penetrate into his very soul. And so this model of friendship and the love of friends that Jesus introduces in 15 now frames my understanding of 14, all right, that it's not just by simple faith alone or by praying the sinner's prayer, but it's by striving inter, to enter into the mind of Christ, to let his values and his perspective and his law uh, color and frame my own experience of life so that I incorporate the person of Christ and his personality into everything that I am. Uh, Pope Francis, in his encyclical on, on the faith, says faith doesn't merely gaze at Jesus, but sees things as Jesus himself sees them with Christ's own eyes. It's a participation in his way of seeing. You by know, love, by love. I'm wondering if, again, this this idea of the either the lenses or the, the mental perspective that you bring with you when you come to Scripture allows you to see it or not see it in different ways, reminds me of why uh, non-Catholic Christians do not understand the idea of Catholics praying for a saint to intercede for us, uh, praying for Mary, for Joseph, for a, um, Isaac Jogues to intercede for us, because often as Protestants, when they see prayer, prayer is worship, whereas from a Catholic standpoint, prayer is friendship. I mean, almost prayer is friendship with God. It's that intimacy. It reminds me in the John 
15 passage a little earlier. It says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will, and it shall be done to you. This intimacy with Christ is a friendship of communication. Well, you raise a good point that I wanted to get to, and that is that in my evangelical experience, prayer was strongly emphasized, but I would say the vast majority of the emphasis was on petitionary prayer, asking God for things. Okay. And sometimes that meant asking for a good parking spot. Other times it meant asking <laughs> for sublime gifts like holiness or faith, all right? But it was essentially petitionary prayer which is right and good and just and neat and all this sort of thing. Nothing wrong with petitionary prayer. But the Catholic tradition, you know, following up on the Psalms even, emphasizes that beyond mere petition, there's also a kind of uh, uh, just a, a mere meditation or contemplation on the mystery of God, a dwelling with God in the depths of our heart that is beyond words. You know, one thing I ask of the Lord, one thing that I seek, that I might gaze on the beauty of the Lord all the days of my life. And so that step in the spiritual life is called mental prayer, where I might take an hour or half an hour or 15 minutes and sit and merely think about the beauty of Christ or the humility of Christ in the incarnation and the crucifixion or the glory of Christ in the resurrection and allow that to work upon my soul to, to, to inflame my affections, to inflame my emotions, to my passions, draw me uh, into a deeper love of him very much on the same model of the life of marriage. You know, anyone who's been married for any length of time and loves their spouse knows that the love uh, and your experience of your spouse goes far beyond mere words. In fact, the, the, the deepest moments of intimacy and fellowship are when you merely gaze into one, of the, one another's eyes and you know what the other is feeling or you long to know what the other is feeling in a way that transcends mere language. And, and that's the kind of union we seek with God in prayer, with this qualification that God is absent to our visible eye. And so while we can have a direct love of God and, and that share in a very participation in the divine nature, that's what St. Peter says in Second Peter 1, 4, yet uh, by faith we grasp him only as through a lens darkly, as St. Paul says. And so we're like, in a sense, God is present in our souls by faith and charity, but there is an absence there that we long to overcome. And that's, that's the promise for those who die in God's friendship, that the, the absent lovers will be united. And now we see through a glass darkly, but then we shall see face to face. You know, David, um, the, uh, talk a bit about the, um, the difference between in the in the Protestant world, often the idea they, we see we saw things through a lens of either or, either or, whereas from a Catholic perspective, and it's I think it's a whole life growing and understanding the mystery of of both and. You know the Calvinists it was either it's all God and not me, or the Arminium it's all me and not God, whereas the Catholic there's this 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 partnership, this walking and friendship with this indwelling, this mutual dwelling, uh, uh, it's a mystery to us in this part of our life that we will not know until we stand fully face to face with him. Okay, so the, the question, talk about the the, uh, the mutuality of the relationship rather than the uh, you know monergistic Calvinist view that God does everything. Well, um, you know, again, I think that... Uh, the scripture and the tradition give us the model of friendship. Um, and, uh, um, 
you know, a father raises a child, the father really provides everything for the child. The child can do nothing without the father, right? Um, without the father, he's, he's uh, you know, he's hopeless. He's going to die, okay? And yet, in love, the father treats the child's contributions with a kind of dignity. He, he dignifies, he honors the kid with the opportunity to participate in the work of the house, you know, in, uh, in, in, uh, in things the father doesn't need the child's help. You know, a friend of mine uses the analogy. If you imagine a, a father who has to carry a heavy burden up a hill, you know, he's pushing a, a boulder or he's pushing a wheelbarrow up the hill. And, and in, in one sense, the kid's help is almost a distraction. All right. But because he wants to dignify the child's efforts, he says, come by and lend me a hand. And so the little boy comes and places his hand at the, you know, the back of the wheelbarrow and he does his dead level best to help push the thing up the hill. Is he contributing? Absolutely. Absolutely. Is he contributing because the father needs that help? No, not at all. But the father dignifies the child's efforts. And that's what God does with us. You know, he, he comes by and gives us the strength. Uh, he gives us the impetus. He gives us the love. Um, and he, he entices us to, to put our will, our action, our decision-making into it. We can't accomplish anything without him. All right. And yet he loves us so much as persons that he wishes to dignify our efforts and even reward them. Yeah, this is one of those kind of verses, David, that if you read every five years of your life when you were 10 and then 15 and 20 and 25 and 30, and if, you, if your desire in the sacramental graces is to grow closer to Christ, almost every time you read it, you find something new because you're drawn closer to understanding the depth of what it means to love Christ, to obey Him, to be intimate with Him. The whole idea of the Trinity dwelling within us I, you know, that's how this verse is often interpreted. And I don't think I ever thought of it that way back in my well, evangelical days. Now, it's all there. If you read earlier in chapter 14, Christ promises the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, in 23, he promises his own coming and the coming of the Father. Um, and so the, the indwelling of the entire Blessed Trinity is on offer. But that's not the normal way in which evangelicals or, right. or Calvinists speak about it. And, and honestly, I, I wonder, I ask myself if there's not, um, you know, sometimes Calvinists are accused of, of tilting a little bit in the direction of Nestorianism, you know, separating the divine and the human in Jesus. And, uh, uh, and I think maybe there's some truth in that. Yeah. Well, again, if you're left to private interpretation, you may not be aware when your own theology is taking you off into paths which is reason that the Lord gave us the scriptures, not dropping out of a cloud, but giving, gave the scriptures through us, to us through the hands of our mother, the church. And uh, so that's why we need to look at it through the eyes of the church. David, thank you so much for joining us today on Deep in Scripture. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. I appreciate it. What a great pleasure and honor to have you. And again, I want to remind the audience that you can hear David Andrews on his daily program at 2 o'clock Eastern Time, called to communion on EWTN radio or on the internet. Now, just a reminder that we want to hear from you. You can email us questions at question at deepinscripture.com or you can leave us a voicemail question or comment by clicking the button when you go to deepinscripture.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Again, Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network, a network of Christian men and women who, in their walk with Christ, found themselves drawn to embrace the Catholic Church. Wherever you may be on your own Christian journey, we invite you to walk, learn, and pray with us. 
So please join us at our new freshly renovated website at www.chnetwork.org. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Deep in Scripture. God bless you. See you again next week.